With me, if you would, to uh, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. We're going to be in a few different texts together this morning, but what I would like to do uh, is turn our attention today to the role of women in worship and in the ministry of the church, and we will focus particularly this morning on their verbal ministry. Uh, Some of you might feel that women are free to engage in all the same ministry activities that men do, and others of you might hear that and go, I don't know, and push back a bit. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but if we were to just think through um, a Sunday morning, a typical Sunday morning, uh, which of the following would you feel comfortable with? Would you feel comfortable as, as you walked in? Uh, perhaps uh, some woman was serving in some kind of official uh, greeter capacity. She greeted you and welcomed you and maybe even helped you to a seat. Uh, what about a uh, woman kind of verbally hosting our service this morning and uh, making announcements, those sort of things? What about... Uh, if a woman were serving or women were serving as vocal leaders for our singing and maybe even making some comments as we did that, or women doing the scripture reading and prayer, uh, what we just had just a few moments ago where we opened up, we read Mark chapter 2 and then prayed. Uh, What if a woman were to stand up here and do what I'm doing right now and preach and teach to the entire congregation or or if a woman were to come up and share a testimony of how she came to Christ or something that God was teaching her, Uh, And I think we can think of a lot of other things that we could ask about as well. Uh, What if we went outside our worship gathering on Sunday morning and asked some things about this? What about women counseling and uh, women counseling women and maybe even women counseling men or for a woman to counsel a couple or women voting on congregational decisions and things like that or women sharing the gospel uh, with with men and women alike, Uh, women leading small group studies or Bible studies or Uh, managing certain ministries of the church. I mean, there are all kinds of things that we could talk about and just ask, uh, what would you feel comfortable with there? Would it bother you if women engaged in any of those activities or or were restricted from any of those activities? And whatever it is that you're feeling, would you be right to be bothered? Are your feelings based on scripture or your own personal presuppositions, your own personal opinions, perhaps your own tradition that you grew up in? Could it be that any of your feelings are actually wrong? People often have wrong ideas about the role of women within the church. And I just want to ask, could you be one of those people? Could that be you? Uh, I think what we have in scripture is a, a road and it's got a ditch on either side. On the one side of the road is basically a ditch that minimizes the role of women within the church and it places uh, restrictions on their ministry activities where God and the Bible don't. And on the other side of the road is the ditch of, of not recognizing the few parameters that God does set. Both ditches are bad. They really are, both of them. You don't want to go off in either one of them. The road is the place to be. And thankfully, God gave us three New Testament texts to help us. And the reason that we're addressing this topic today is because one of those three texts is actually that the the passage that we looked at last week, uh, but I didn't really dive into that topic as we worked through the text last week, but it is one of the key ones. In fact, it's it's probably the one um, that is not as well known, but it's highly significant. So those three texts are 1 Corinthians 11, 4 to 5, part of our text last week. A second passage in 1 Corinthians is chapter 14, verses 33 to 36. And then there's a third in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And so we're going to look at those three texts this morning. And we need to follow God's teaching about women in the church, whatever that is. So let's dive in and find out what it is. 
Um, kind of before we really dive into those three passages, let me just give you a sampling from one of those passages. 1 Corinthians 14, 33b to 34 says this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Okay, wow, like that is a, that's a pretty strong big statement, right? Must women be silent in church? And if so, what does that look like and not look like? And that's what we want to get into this morning. And so we're going to make two big observations together. Here's the first one. God closes off a few activities within the church to women. Emphasis on the word few. There are a few restrictions and we need to be aware of what those are because they are important. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 gives us two of those restrictions. And they're both rooted in something that we looked at last week, uh, the headship principle. Uh, first, God restricts women from preaching and teaching to men. Uh, look with me at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Uh, God restricts women from preaching and teaching the Bible to men. That does not mean that a woman cannot teach men on other topics and in other settings, uh, such as secular education or the workplace and things like that. Uh, in the church, women are also free to teach other ladies and children. Uh, many women have the gift of teaching. And that gift should be exercised within the church uh, Paul's just clarifying, God doesn't want that to be towards men. Second, God restricts women from exercising authority directly over men. Verse 12 of the same passage teaches that a woman is not to exercise authority over a man. And this principle, as you think about it, it's kind of an overarching type of principle that could be violated in all different manner of ways. Uh, but the idea is that she is not to be in a position or doing things where she's having rule or authority over men within the congregation, within the church, or, or governing in some way. Why is that? And, and do these two first restrictions apply today? Well, uh, yes, they do. And Paul's going to clarify that in the verses that come. How do we know that? Well, he's going to give us uh, just a couple of reasons here uh, given for these restrictions in this passage. And we see those reasons in verses 13 and 14. And the first one that it gives is the creation order. And by the way, I think we need to highlight here, this is pre-fall. Okay, because a lot of times what happens is we go, well, um, once people have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and there's the, we're a new creation and all of that, um, and, and some of this, what he's going to say here, it was a, has to do with man's fallenness. This is all before man's fallenness. And, and the gospel and new life in Christ doesn't change what we're about to look at. He goes directly to the creation order before there was any sin in the world. Look at verse 13. Here's his rationale for these first two restrictions. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That is not a statement of superiority or anything like that. It's a statement of sequence and God's ordering of things. God links these two restrictions to the order in which he created Adam and Eve. And much like what we saw last week, uh, verse 13 there, it's, it's reaffirming the headship principle that we saw back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it, remember, headship implies authority, but it, it need not imply superiority or inferiority or anything like that. But this is all rooted in the creation order, the order in which God created man and woman. 
And then he's going to kind of offer a second reason, and that's the danger of violating that order. Look at verse 14. It says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, It's possible that this verse could be teaching that women are somehow more susceptible to temptation or false doctrine than, than men. I find that highly unlikely that that is the meaning of this verse. The focus has been on order and sequence. God's creation order. One writer offers the following interpretation. I just want to quote a couple of sentences from him. He says, It's more likely than verse 14 in conjunction with verse 13 is intended to remind the women at Ephesus, that's uh, the people to whom 1 Timothy was written, that Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden precisely in taking the initiative over the man whom God had given to be with her and to care for her. And so in the same way, he writes, if the women at the church at Ephesus proclaim their independence from the men of the church, refusing to learn in quietness and full submission, seeking roles that have been given to men in the church, they will make the same mistake Eve made and bring similar disaster on themselves and the church. I find that explanation much more satisfying and true to the context and the idea that women are more susceptible to temptation and false doctrine. It's all going back to creation order and God's design and God's plan. Third, uh, in conjunction with that second restriction, we have a third restriction. God restricts women from the office of elder. This is clear not only from the fact that 1 Timothy chapter 3 teaches that an elder, uh, which another term for an elder is pastor. 1 Timothy 3 teaches that an elder or a pastor is a man, but also uh, we know that women shouldn't be in this office because the Bible teaches that the office of pastor or elder is a position of authority and oversight. For example, uh, a verse that would highlight that dynamic is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I think a verse many of you would be familiar with. It says, obey your leaders. Uh, If you grew up and you memorized this verse in the King James uh, Version, you may have it in your mind this way. Obey them that have the what over you? The rule. And submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's Hebrews 13, verse 17. When 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 teaches that a woman is not to exercise authority over a man, it becomes clear that she, is, she cannot serve in the office of an elder, of a pastor. Several years ago, I was contacted by a young woman uh, who was in university, and she was training to be a pastor, and she got some sort of class assignment. And her, her assignment was to reach out to a few different area pastors with a survey, a questionnaire, uh, something like that, and ask for their two to three top pieces of advice. So here you've got a young woman, she's uh, training to be a pastor, and she's supposed to reach out to some area pastors for some good advice to get her started. What advice would you have given her? I mean, this what she asked for my advice. What advice would you have given? Well, I thought, oh man, this is, you know, a bit delicate, but I have one big burning thought in my mind here. Um, And so as I responded to her while affirming the unquantifiable significance of women in the life of the church, I just tried as tactfully as possible to advise her. You know, I think probably the single greatest advice I could give you is to open up your Bible and just study these texts for what they say. Because they are all too quickly dismissed or explained away. God restricts women from the office of elder. And one fourth restriction, God restricts women from something that's related to prophesying. 
And I don't want to tell you what it is yet. I want to kind of work through it inductively, so to speak. Uh, Turn back to 1 Corinthians and let's go to chapter 14. And we're going to look together at verses 33 to 36. That's kind of the heart of this text. And let's look at it together and see if we can't figure out what it is exactly that God restricts women from doing. And I think we need a degree of precision here. It's important. The general context is orderly worship here in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, the chapter and the surrounding chapters. And the specific context of these verses is something that the Apostle Paul is going to label or refer to as prophesying. Question, what on earth is prophesying? Well, prophesying is a word that is used throughout the scriptures and it's used in a a, a couple different senses. In fact, it's used quite broadly. Sometimes prophesying is used of preaching. Uh, You might think of the phrase uh, forth-telling. You're proclaiming something forth. Other times it's used of predicting or foretelling. The Old Testament prophets did both of those things. Actually, we often think of the prophets primarily as predicting things, but most of the time they were just uh, proclaiming something. They were just preaching some kind of message that wasn't even predictive in nature. But they did both. They preached and they foretold. And in both instances, their prophesying was proclaiming the authoritative word of God. However, that uh, is arguably not how the word prophesy is being used in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Some people believe that it is. Um, But if you look with me at chapter 13, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, we read these words, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. I think we could argue that prophesying is what's often labeled a sign gift uh, that was exercised by both men and women within the first century of the church. And it seems to have reference to uh, both receiving and sharing some kind of revelation from God. And Paul said in chapter 13, verse 8, that prophecies would pass away. In other words, many would argue that there, it's a spirit, the spiritual gift of prophecy, God's saying it's going to cease at some point, along with the gift of tongues and some other things. Now, with that in mind, look with me at chapter 14, and I want to read from verses 29 to 35 to kind of uh, give us a clue of what the context is here in this particular passage. So chapter 14, beginning in verse 29. And God's talking about order in, the, in, in a worship service and what that should look like, or as God's people gather, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Okay, so take your turn. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 makes clear that these prophecies did not... Uh, have the same authority as Scripture. 
or at, at least at a, at a minimum, what was being said from some person's mouth, it needed to be weighed and examined. Is this accurate? Is this right? Uh, that lack of authority is why it had to be weighed, recognizing that you could have a mixture there of what was being said and such. So it needed to be weighed there in verse 29 and it be subject to the examination of other prophets. And one writer makes a helpful distinction between prophesying and teaching. He writes, prophecy is based on spontaneous revelation while teaching is an exposition of received revelation. In verse 29, you see two things happening. If you look back at that verse, what do you see going on? Well, in verse 29, you see first that prophets are prophesying one by one. That's the first thing you see going on verbally. And the second thing you see is that people are weighing or judging what was being said. And it's in this con- the context of those two things that the women are told to be silent. Okay, so question for you. You've got two things going on verbally. Prophesying and weighing of prophecies. What are the, where are the women told not to engage in either one of those? Or one of them? What's going on? Well, here's the catch. The larger context specifically allows for women to both pray and prophesy. It's the text we saw last week, chapter 11, verses 4 to 5. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35 must be interpreted within the larger context. We cannot take the position that Paul contradicted himself. These two texts have to be reconciled. And it is the second activity that women are restricted from. They were to be silent when it came to the weighing of prophecies. Why? Well, once someone, a man or a woman, shared a prophecy, the others would then jump in, or some of the others, the other prophets, would jump in and authoritatively determine uh, its, its validity. Is this right? Does this correspond to authoritative truth? And they would jump in and determine its validity and its spiritual significance. And following that, there may have even been exhortation to do something with the prophecy by way of application. And God is telling the women, don't jump in there and assume the role of authority and start exhorting people what to do. Why? Well, it comes back to the first two restrictions that we saw. In summary, God restricts women from weighing of prophecies. And if one believes that gift of prophecy has ceased, then the application for today is really of a more indirect nature. And as we get, continue to work through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14, we'll try to pinpoint more the, the exact nature of what this prophesying was. But we'll do that on a future day. So what we've seen, though, is that God closes off a few activities within the church to women. What are they? Preaching and teaching the Bible to men. Exercising authority over men and serving as an elder. And then the third thing is weighing prophecies. Though we've spent a fair deal of time on those things, we're, on, we're really only talking about a few things. I just summarize them. Here they are. Boom, boom, boom. If we only consider the first two passages, though, we might walk away with a very, very restrictive view on women in worship and the life of the church. And I think often as people think about these texts, what comes to mind is 1 Timothy 2. And what comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 14. But often the text that is not brought into the discussion is 1 Corinthians 
chapter 11. If we just look at the first two texts, we might walk away with an overly restrictive viewpoint, but God gives us a third text that has to reconcile with the first two. And as I said, it's a text we've looked at last week, 1 Corinthians 11, particularly verses 4 to 5. God does close off a few activities within the church to women, but a second observation is that God opens up many, many activities within the church to women. Look back at chapter 11. I just want to read these verses, verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Obviously, a lot of context there. Um, we looked at that last week. If you weren't here, if you, go, you can go back and listen to uh, the message on that text. But what is it that God's attacking in verses 4 and 5? He's addressing something. What is it that he's addressing? Is God going after the women because they were praying and prophesying in the church setting? Is that what he's trying to, is he saying that needs to stop? No, that's not what he's doing. And in fact, that would be very a very hard argument to make and support in the context there. You would also have a hard time arguing that this was only uh, something that was taking place at home or in some small group setting and that he's not referring to the larger gathering. One of the reasons I say that, in the Old Testament book of Joel, God said that in the New Covenant era, something was going to happen. Something amazing was going to happen. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So in Joel's day, the prophecy came that a day would come when God would pour out, unleash his spirit on all flesh. And then the verse continues, Joel 2, two verse 28. When that happens, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he said what everybody was experiencing there in Acts chapter 2, it was Joel's prophecy being fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians 11, 4-5, God does not rebuke women for praying and prophesying in the church. Rather, he's giving them instructions on how to do that the right way, which is what we looked at last week. And one of the primary concerns was the headship principle was being completely violated. They needed to do this in such a way that honored male headship. And so on. As regards women's verbal ministry, I think it's just worth highlighting from verses 4 and 5 that God allows women to pray in the church. You think about times of church prayer gatherings, and um, I, I think we need to be reminded at times that men and women can sit together and they can pray together. You don't have to divide, you know, let's put the men over here and let's put the women over here. Sure, I mean, if you want to do that, that's great. But that's not something that has to be done. Further, I think that we could also argue from this text that in a worship service, that a woman could stand up in front of the congregation and pray. And that that could be done in a way that honors male headship. It could also be done in a way that doesn't. And that's what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
God allows women to pray and God allows women as well to prophesy. The gift of prophecy seems to have ceased after the first century, but I think with that we could draw some helpful parallels for today. In the first century, God allowed women to prophesy, not preach, but to verbally relay the revelation that that had come from God. And today, along similar lines, could a woman not stand up and simply read God's revelation, his word in our hearing? If prophesying could be done in a way that honored male headship, couldn't something like reading scripture actually be done the same way? Perhaps what I've just said has made some of you feel a bit uncomfortable. I, I don't really know. But I would ask you this, should it? With 1 Corinthians 11 opened up right in front of you. God allows women to pray, to prophesy. God also allows women to engage in many, many other activities. When God marked off boundary lines, he he delineated for us what is out of bounds. But also what's in bounds. And I think when we come to different topics like this, where God is giving us boundaries in Scripture, I think we're always wise to consider, well... Anytime there's a boundary, there's something outside of bounds and there's something that's inside. And the field of play is quite large. And we're wise actually to recognize it and affirm that. I grew up playing a lot of soccer. A soccer field, as I think most of you know, it's rectangular in shape. You have four boundary lines, two end lines, two side lines. And it's actually the boundary lines that keep the game fun and exciting. What if you didn't have those? It's just a free-for-all. You run wherever you want. You take the ball wherever you want. You can go downtown with the ball. I mean, it'd just be such a frustrating game. The boundary lines help keep things fun and exciting and dynamic. What would you think, though, if the soccer team decided we're only going to use the left or the right side of the field? And they played as if there was an imaginary boundary line that ran from one net to the other, just straight up the field. And they only played on one side. What would you think? Do you think they'd win? Probably not. And in the sports analogy, we'd ask, well, why would you, if you've got this entire field of play, why would you limit it yourself to, to one half of that if you actually want to win the game? You wouldn't. And when it comes to women and worship, and the ministry of the church, I think we should ask this question. Why would we draw extra boundary lines that God doesn't? And do do we want to do that? Our mission is grand and glorious, and we might say we want to win. We want everyone fully engaged, and we want everyone fully using their spiritual gifts. Men, women, and children. And what that means, if that's going to happen well, we need to know where the lines are. We have to know where they are. And that's why we looked at the first four restrictions this morning. And we need to recognize the entire field and use it well. And even at times, if we don't use the entire field, I think we at least need to recognize and acknowledge its existence. It's also important to recognize that when it comes to the specific outworkings of these principles, elders are going to have to make some judgment calls on all kinds of things from church to church. And that's going to vary. And it's going to look different from place to place. And our elders are going to do that. We're going to make judgment calls here at Beaumont Baptist. Um, For example, we're going to ask questions. Okay, well, we've got this headship principle and here's some of the texts and 
Uh, how do we use or not use women, so to speak, on the platform? Uh, how do we do that? And how do we do that in such a way that it conveys uh, this headship principle? And I think that it's important to recognize, well, there's some, there's some subjectivity to that. But we're going to make decisions for our context. That said, uh, please understand that within the biblical parameters, judgment calls by individual churches on some of these matters are going to look different. And that's probably good and healthy and appropriate. God opens up many activities within the church to women. And that is a wonderful thing. And we just want to do that here at Beaumont Baptist in a way uh, that very much follows what God says and honors the principles that God set forth in what we saw there in 1 Corinthians 11 last week of headship and some of the other principles that we saw there. But I think we want to be very careful that we don't end up in the ditch on either side of the road. On the one hand, uh, treating women in, in a way that somehow minimizes their activity and significance in the church and the role that they play. And on the other hand, we're, we're crossing God's very clear boundary lines. Uh, neither of those ditches is the ditch we want to be in. We want to be on the road uh, that God has given us. And as I said, we, we want to try as a church to say, hey, God's given. Everyone who's born again in this body has the spirit of God dwelling within them and has spiritual gifts. And God wants those gifts to be used and tapped into. So how do we do that well? in a way that's pleasing and honoring to God. We need to follow God's teaching about women in the church. And for those of you ladies here, I hope you know uh, that from a leadership perspective, uh, we are so grateful for your ministry and your contributions and think that it is enormous and significant and just say thank you for your service uh, here at Beaumont Baptist Church and ultimately to the Lord and to our King. Will you bow with me at this time as we conclude?